Bibles to Psalm 89, Psalm 89, and uh, it's neat how the worship team sang that last, last song about God's faithfulness, because that's really what this psalm is about. It's a psalm about God's faithfulness. You know, so many times we're unfaithful, and thank God that his faithfulness is not based on my faithfulness, because I'd be in big trouble. Psalm 89 <clears throat> starts out as a psalm of praise, but it ends as a psalm of mourning. It rejoices in God's covenant with David. And then it expresses grief in how David's descendants hadn't stayed faithful to the terms of the covenant. Yet even in the face of unfaithfulness, this psalm reaffirms God's faithfulness to his covenant. And a covenant is an, is an, an agreement. It's a promise. So, you know, we have promises from God. And, and again, even in the face of unfaithfulness, this psalm reaffirms God's faithfulness to his promises and its eventual fulfillment in David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The title of the psalm is credited to Ethan, the Ezraite, who was also known as Jejuthun. The structure of the psalm goes like this. First, in verses 1 through 4, is praise to the Lord for his everlasting covenant with David. Secondly, in verses 5 through 18, are a celebration of God who established his covenant with David. And third, in verses 19 through 37, is a review of the covenant with David. Fourth, verses 38 through 45, a concern at a time of national distress. And fifth, verses 46 through 51, is a complaint to the Lord to provoke him to remember his covenant and restore the prosperity of his people. And sixth, in verse 52, is an, additional, is an addition of blessing. The theme of this psalm is God's promise to preserve David's descendants. God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who will reign for eternity. So the love and the kindness that was promised to David, and here's the important thing to take away from this study tonight. The love and the kindness that is promised to David here in this psalm is ours in Christ. The author is Ethan the Ezraite. Ezraite. He's a Levite leader and possibly one of the head musicians in the temple, or he's one of his descendants. And this is also the last book of the third book of Psalms. As you know, God has many attributes, many qualities or characters, but all of his attributes, God, of, of all of them, God's faithfulness is pretty hard to beat. Men and women are unfaithful. We make promises and then we break them. We want people to rely on us, but we can't even rely upon ourselves. But our God is totally faithful and what he promises, he does. And that's what this psalm is all about. The psalms which are consistently honest, which is more than we can say for ourselves, also describes a situation where it seems like God hasn't been faithful. And I think many times as believers, we, we reach a place in our life sometimes or some situation, and we can feel like, you know what, God hasn't been faithful. And, and many times we ask as the psalmist here, where's your faithfulness, God? God is faithful, period. It's not, God, not is God faithful, question mark. God is faithful. But there are times when he doesn't seem to be faithful. And in verses 1 through 37, we're going to look at God's faithfulness. And then in verses 39 through 51, the question, where is your faithfulness? 
So let's begin now with Psalm 89, verse 1. And the psalmist says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. Is God good to you? Yes. He definitely is. Second Chronicles 7, 3 says, For God is good. It is a statement. It is not a question. God is definitely good to me. And because he is, that stirs up the psalmist to say, because he is, that is because he is good to me. He says in verse one, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Now, maybe I can't sing of his mercies. Well, there's no doubt that I can't sing of his mercies. But you know what I can do? I can surely tell everybody the best way I know how. God's mercies are wonderful. And that's because, as we learned this morning in Isaiah 9, 6, his name will be called Wonderful. With my mouth, the psalmist says, I will make known your faithfulness. Oh, how faithful he's been to me. Notice the word your in verse 1. It's your faithfulness, God. It's God's faithfulness and not mine. It's praise to God for his faithfulness to David. Look at the first part of verse 2 right now. The psalmist goes on to say, For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. For I have said, mercy shall be built up. That means mercy shall last forever. His mercy lasts forever. His heart was sure of it. The psalmist's heart was sure that God's mercy would last forever. And he'd confirmed it as an unconditional truth. God's unfailing love will last forever. And the psalmist was sure that on a, a, a sure foundation that the Lord intended to pile up a wonderful house of goodness, a house of refuge for all of his people, where the son of David, Jesus Christ, should be glorified forever as the supplier of heaven's grace. Look at the second part of verse two now. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. God's faithfulness is no thing of earth. Here on earth, nothing is for sure. And here on earth, all things are always changing. But heaven is the origin of truth. Ever since the day of creation, the blue skies have never changed. We read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. You see, God has his way. Nahum 1.3 says, in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. God is in control of the seasons and the times. It's the same with the Lord's truth. It will never change. The psalmist said here that, that we can say it too. No matter what happens in our life, the Lord's truth will not change. You know why? God's nature, his character guarantees his never-ending mercy and faithfulness to us. You see, the church needs to remember this. And who's the church? You and me. The people in the building. The building's not the church. You and I need to remember this, that no matter what happens, God's word will never change. We need to remember that whenever we're in trouble or when our hearts are heavy with grief, God's word never changes Verses three and four. The psalmist goes on to say, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. 
your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Now the Lord is responding to Ethan, what Ethan said in verses 1 and 2. This is the reason why the psalmist is so confident in God's mercy and truth. You see, he knew that the Lord had made a covenant of grace with David. And God confirmed it, it says, by, by an oath. It says he's, it was sworn. God confirmed that covenant with an oath. Here the psalmist quotes God's words revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And it's a short version of the original covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. David was the Lord's chosen. And God made a covenant with David that would be fulfilled in Christ through David's ancestry. In Christ, there is a covenant that's established with all of the Lord's chosen. And they're led by grace to be the Lord's servants and then ordained as kings and priests by Jesus Christ. How comforting it is to see that the Lord Jesus didn't just make a covenant or that the Lord God didn't just make a covenant, but he stuck to it many years later. And he even bears witness to it in his own word, which should be a sure reason for faith. And the psalmist clearly thought that it was. A Scottish lady one day sent her boy away to school and he came home a skeptic. She was fixing breakfast for him one morning and she was telling him how God had saved her, how sure she was of it and how wonderful his salvation was. Finally, the son couldn't take it anymore and he blurted out, Mom, your little soul doesn't amount to anything. Your soul is so small compared to this great universe. God could forget you and he wouldn't even miss you. On and on he talked. Then there was silence. And this little Scottish mother kept quiet for a while. She finished serving breakfast and she sat down to eat. And then she said, son, I've been thinking about what you said. And maybe you're right. My soul might not amount to anything. But if I lose my soul... God is going to lose more than I will. Her son asked, well, what do you mean? Her reply was this. If I lose my soul, you've just said it doesn't amount to much. So I wouldn't lose much, but God would lose a great deal. He would lose his word and his reputation because he said he would save me. And she was absolutely right. God would lose his reputation if he didn't keep his covenant to David. Because God is faithful. Verses 5 through 8. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. God's faithfulness now is praised in heaven. After, uh, the, after expressing his faith, you know, after the psalmist expressed his faith and he gets, uh, gets his answer from God, the psalmist now turns to telling about the wonders of God's power in creation and the history that, that show the fulfillment of his promises to David. In Psalm 19.1, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. You see, the Lord doesn't just have the desire to do what he's promised. You know, he also has the ability to do it. 
God's power in creation and nature is described. In verse 5, it says, The heavens will praise your wonders. Your faithfulness will also be praised in the assembly of the saints. Now, the word saints here aren't believers. He's not speaking of believers. These are angels. He says, Your faithfulness will also be praised in the assembly of the angels. In heaven, they're giving God praise and glory and honor. In the heavens, a multitude of angels praise the Lord. You see, it's a scene of majesty and magnificence to show that God is beyond compare, that there's no one like him. His power and his purity place him high above nature and angels. Again, verse 6, notice what it says. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? Who's like him? Who's like him? The heavens with all of the galaxy and all of the stars and the sun and the moon, which were worshipped as gods. They were worshipped as gods because of their brightness and their beauty and their sparkle and their glory. But honestly, which of all of those famous lights and heavenly stars can be compared to the Father of lights? Those things might shine and twinkle. We might see a shooting star when we look up in the sky. But what happens when the day comes? the sun rises all of those lights disappear and yet the lord in all of his glory still shines notice verse 7 again god is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him the holiest men tremble in the presence of jehovah god even though they know him it's mixed that praise is mixed with the deepest awe how reverent our worship should be Notice where angels cover their faces. We see that in Isaiah 6 too. Angels cover their faces before the Lord. Men should surely bow before God in the humblest way. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you. It's a reverence. It's not a bully fear like, oh, God's going to hit me or God's going to club me if I mess up. No, it's a reverent fear because of who God is. There's not enough of that today. There's not enough reverence of God today. The nearer they are to him, notice, the more they adore him. The angels, the closer they are to him, the more they adore him. If simple creatures are struck with awe in the presence of God, how much more we, God's servants, royal servants, are to be reverent in the presence of the great king. Irreverence is rebellion. Thinking about the covenant of grace It tends to create a a, a deeper awe of God. When you think about the promises of God, who would make promises like that to us? And so again, the covenant of grace, thinking about it, tends to create a deeper awe of God and draws us closer to him. And then more of his glories are seen by us as we get closer to him. And the more humbly we should be before his majesty. Then again, verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. The angel's answer is this, Lord, you alone are mighty. O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you, verse 8 says. Isn't it interesting to think that the angels are praising God in heaven for the very thing that we're tempted to do or often questioning him about, you know, here on earth. We, we're, we're tempted to do it or, or to question his faithfulness. 
When we see the angels praising him, their, their praise is a rebuke to our weak faith. If we thought like the angels did, we would be praising him for his great faithfulness all of the time. Verses 9 through 13. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who was slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. This speaks of God's faithfulness on the earth. After talking about God's faithfulness and strength, the psalmist now moves next to uh, moves next to earth where God's power is especially clear. Now the psalmist is focusing on God's power here, not his faithfulness, because it's the power of God that enables him to be effective in his faithfulness to his people. If he didn't have the power to do what, you know, he, he's, he's promised to do, then he wouldn't, you know, he, he wouldn't be effective. He couldn't be effective for his people. He's effectively faithful because he is his people's shield. Verse 18 says, and his sure defense against enemies. You see, God is able to still the wind and calm the seas. The, 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 the word Rahab here. Uh, it is the name of a mythical sea monster that represents chaos in ancient literature. Verses 14 through 18. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name, they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness, they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. This speaks of God's faithfulness with his people. Again, after moving from uh, uh, heaven to earth, And from nature to the specific event of the exodus of Egypt, the psalmist now turns to the faithfulness of God to his people in general. Here the psalmist mentions many other attributes of God that his people have experienced and praised him for. And these attributes are added to faithfulness as basic to God's character and as a source for faith in his faithfulness. God has the power to be faithful. But does he want to be? Is he willing? These attributes assure us that he does. The first new attribute of God mentioned in verse 14 is righteousness. That's the basic principle of justice, which is mentioned next. You see, without righteousness, there can't be justice, which is giving everybody what they're due. Pardon for those who are innocent and condemnation for those who are guilty. Justice is the application of righteousness. Mercy and truth or love was already mentioned in verses 1 and 2. Where in verse 14 now is connected to faithfulness. Which is again the attribute of God that we've been looking at all along. God's faithfulness. What it means is that we can count on God to do what he's promised to do. Then the last three attributes are possessions of God's people. Glory, strength, and favor. Favor is grace. 
But you know what? They, they belong to us only because they first belong to God. He's given them to us. He alone is gracious. He alone is strong. He alone is, is, is glorious. And it's because he is that we, his people, experience these same graces ourselves. What's the right response of the people who have come to know and to share in the blessings of such a great God? Verse 15 and 16 tell us the answer is they are to praise God and rejoice in him. Verses 19 through 29 now. Then you spoke in a vision to your holy one and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. So again, he's talking about King David. Verse 23, I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So verses 19 through 29, God is speaking about David the king. God's faithfulness to David, the covenant. The covenant mentioned in verse 3, here now in these verses, it is discussed more clearly. And verses 19 through 29 are an explanation on the outline of the covenant given in verses 3 and 4. Verses 19 through 29 here have clear references to 2 Samuel 7. And they highlight several important qualities of God's covenant that he made with David. For example, in verses 19 through 20 is God's choice of David to be king. In verse 21 here, God's strengthening of David for his work as king. In verse 22, God protects David from his enemies. And in verse 23, God grants David victory over his enemies. In verses 20 through 24 through 27, God exalts David to prominence among all the kings of the nations. And in verses 28 through 29, God's extending the blessing to David's sons all that come after him. Verses 30 through 37. But notice, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, notice, I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Notice, he says, even if his sons don't walk with me and they don't follow my ways, he says here, I will not break my covenant with him. He says, the word that has gone out of my lips will not change. Verse 35, he says, once I have sworn my holiness, notice, once I have sworn by an oath, my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. This speaks of the faithfulness of God 
as he disciplines. This is also an explanation on the covenant. The covenant promise dealing specifically with David's human descendants. Those that would come after him and what they could expect if they drift into sin. It says that they will be disciplined just like a father disciplines his son. The covenant, it will stay intact. Even though they don't follow after God. The covenant will stay intact even in that case. Why? Because it's an eternal covenant. It will never be broken. Yet God's faithfulness is in the discipline as well. Harry Ironside says this. He tells the story of what happened to him in his early ministry. He'd been preaching in Fresno, California. And the day came when he was out of money. He had to check out of his hotel. And that evening he was hungry. He hadn't eaten. So he settled himself under a tree on the lawn of the courthouse for the night. He thought of Philippians 4.19 that says, My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But he began to complain. Why doesn't God do it then? How many times have we been there? God, you've promised to supply what I need. And because I don't get it right away, what do I do? God, why? Why aren't you keeping your promise? He goes on to say, why isn't God faithful to his promise? And as, and as Harry Ironside prayed that night, God brought to his mind things about which he'd grown careless about, <clears throat> and God renewed him spiritually. And later God did provide for his needs. Old friends appeared to provide housing for him. The meetings went well. The people even took up a collection that helped him get home. The people even took up a collection that helped him get home. But here's the interesting thing. As he left Fresno, Ironside stopped by the post office where he found a letter from his father. He wasn't expecting this letter, so it surprised him. In the letter, his father had written to him, God spoke to me through Philippians 4.19 today. He promised to supply all our need. Someday he may see I need starving, and if he does, he'll supply that. It is amazing. See, we look at one side of the scriptures when God says, I will supply all of your need. Oh, Lord, I need money for rent. I need this. I need this, Lord, and I need food, and I need, I need. He says, well, maybe you need to starve. (laughs) Why? So that you'll draw closer to me. You know, that blew me away. Because many times we only see one side of the scriptures. In the wisdom of God, he says, yeah, you may think that's what you need. But you know what you need? You need to starve. You see, there were some things in Harry Ironside's life, it says that he'd grown careless about. And this experience renewed his spirituality. Why? Because God allowed him to be hungry. God allowed him to, to you know, uh, I'm assuming sleep outside in, in, the, in the park that night or by the courthouse that night. And that ministered to him. It drew him closer to the Lord. You see, that's what he needed. More than he needed the money to go out, get, get back home. And you see, we have to keep that in mind. God knows exactly what I need even before I ask for it. And the things that I think I need may not be what I need at all. And that's why many times we look at God and say, Lord, what are you doing? I need this. He says, no, you don't. This is what I think you need. 
You see, Ironside saw then that God needed to put him through a time of need for discipline for the purpose of bringing him closer to God. You see, that's our greatest need. Not stuff, but a closer walk with God. And because God loves us, he'll see to it that that happens. Verses 38 through 45. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. In the first part of the psalm, the psalmist is praising God for keeping his covenant with David. Now here in the second part, it's about the promise and the reality of it. Whatever the circumstances are behind this psalmist writing this psalm, they seemed bad enough to make the psalmist question God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. You know, he's saying, how could God be faithful when the king's crown, speaking of David, how could God be faithful when David's crown has been has been defiled? Verse 39 says, casting it to the ground. He says, how could how could God be faithful when the walls have all been broken down? Verse 40. How can God be faithful when the city's been plundered? Verse 41. How, the, how can God be faithful when the king's enemies have been exalted? Verse 42 says. And how can God be deemed faithful when the edge of the king's sword has been turned back in battle? Verse 43. And then how can the, the Lord be deemed faithful when the king's glory has ended? According to verse 44. And then on top of all of those things and on top of the days of his youth, They've been cut short, verse 45 says. He says he's grown old before his time. The unusual thing about these accusations, notice, is that God is being blamed for it. All but verse 41 has you, God, listed as the responsible person. Now, this is something that's been caused by God. All these things that we just read that happened to David, they were all caused by God. And you know what? That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because if God isn't behind the disaster in David, if God isn't behind our disasters, then guess what? In David's life, the tragedy of David's defeat and overthrow, as well as any other disaster in life, is really a random thing. Therefore, it's a meaningless event. And if that's true, then there's no uh, solution and never can be. You see, if that was true, that, that this was a random act in David's life, then whatever tragedies, tragedies come into your life and my life, they have no meaning, they have no solution. If there's no God, then sickness and death, the loss of friends, the loss of jobs and reputation or anything else, it just happens. And the good things, they don't have any meaning either. So all you can do is go with the flow. Take it as it comes. 
and die knowing that no matter what you've done in life means nothing. On the other hand, if God is behind everything that happens in my life and your life, then even though we may not understand why it's happening or what God is doing, we can know this, that there is a purpose somewhere for it. And that a solution to the problem will be found, maybe not in this life, but then in the next. Now, some people might say, well, you know, you're just ignoring the problem because you don't want to face reality. But you know what? It's not choosing between a, a groundless, a, 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 a baseless positive attitude. Because a lot of people say, well, you, you know, I've heard it said, oh, you know, think positive. Think positive. You know, when, when it, there was a time when my, my wife's cancer markers were up and I was in a, in a place getting ready for my, my daughter's reception for her wedding and her markers went up and I, I just had this look on my face because she called me while I was there. And the lady says, is everything okay? I go, well, and I told her, she said, oh, Chin up, think positive. You know, that was a baseless, groundless thing to say because what is she basing it on? Just think positive. You know, I knew that God was in control. I knew God that, had, that God had everything in hand. It was, there's a difference between a baseless, positive attitude and a bold facing of reality. But man, without God... You really have nothing, no foundation, nothing to stand on. You see, it's between faith and despair. The psalmist isn't a person characterized by wild optimism. Oh, everything's going to be okay. You know, some of them have a tendency to find good in everything. He faces reality, but he faces it with God. There's the difference. It's facing the realities of life with God. Otherwise, if everything was just a random act, then God's not in control. You know, it's like, God, well, I'm I just sorry. I, I just couldn't uh, do anything about that. What a drag that would be to know that my God cannot stop those things in my life. Or if he allows them, then he has a purpose. So either way, it's good. It's good. Verses 46 through 51. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself, your face? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Notice how he's questioning God's faithfulness. Verse 50. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. One of the most often asked questions by believers. How long, Lord? How long, how much longer is this going to go on? What a common and often asked question among us. It's asked because it seems like he's broken his covenant, like he's broken his promise to us, like he's not keeping his word. Believers ask this when they feel abandoned. And when God seems like he's not doing anything. It's not so much a cry of unbelief as it is a cry of faith. 
Because it's a cry to God looking for an answer. In other words, the believers know that the problem they're dealing with isn't God's faithfulness, it's His timing or His delays. And they're not really delays. We think they're delays. But Isaiah says sometimes God makes us wait that He might be more gracious to us. We're in such an er a hurry to settle for second best when God wants the best for me. And some, sometimes getting the best means waiting longer. God wants to be gracious to us. But we're in such a hurry to just, hey, let's get this over with now, God. So again, it's not so much a cry of unbelief as it is a cry of faith. Because again, he's looking for an answer. And you know, when do we want that? We want it now. We have a tough time with God's timing. Or these people are, are, are limited and, and, and they, they're, they're, they have mistaken feelings and thoughts about God. Because they're limited by their own, inf, their own finite minds. And so we, we, we mistake God. We have the wrong thoughts about God. But after all is said and done, the psalmist knows that God is faithful to his covenant. And that he won't break his promises. And the problem is really one of God's timing. Lord, when are you going to show that you're faithful? When are you going to prove your word to me? And the psalmist wants God to act now while he's still alive. So these last verses are asking God to do something while the psalmist is still alive. And there's two requests. In verses 46 through 48, he speaks about the shortness of human life. He knows God's timing is his own. He knows that in God's due time, he will answer. But he can't wait that long. <laughs> he can't wait that long. He says, Lord, I'm only human and my life, my life is short. God can take as long as he wants, but I can't wait as long as he wants. My life is short. I'm only human. And I, and I can't keep myself from going to the grave long enough to see and enjoy your blessing, Lord, if you don't hurry up, which is true of us as well. We may not be here long enough to see everything that God has in mind for his people. But if we're going to see anything, you know, we, it has to be now. And I remember a, 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 in reading the, one of the biographies of, of George Mueller, who was a prayer warrior. I remember he, 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 was, he, prayed for his, he prayed for a friend for 30 years. 30 years. And somebody asked him, why do you keep praying for your friend? Why? If God hasn't answered now, why do you keep praying for him? He says, well, he says, I, I, I don't feel that God put that desire in my heart to pray for him, to pray for him, and then quit. George Mueller died without seeing that friend come to the Lord, but after he died, he did. You see, we don't know. We may not be here long enough to see what God is going to do. The second thing is, is the dishonoring of God by his enemies in 49 through 51. The psalmist seems to combine mockery against God, mockery of the king, and mockery that's directed at himself in verses 50 through 51. He tells God, God, don't let your enemies get away with this. Don't, don't let them get away with mocking, you know, the king and, and, and you and me. But if we pray selfishly, our prayers have little force with God, little power with God, little influence with God. 
You see, we're also in a covenant if we have believed in Jesus Christ. And God never changes. And because he doesn't, you can depend upon him. So God determining to show more abundantly to us, the heirs of promise, the unchangeability, the immutability of his counsel, of his word, is confirmed by an oath in Hebrews 6, 17 through 19, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'll finish with this story from Arthur Pink. He said, Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital unfaithfulness abounds on every hand. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach truth have no scruples about attacking and denying it. Nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. How refreshing then and how blessed to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things at all times. And the psalmist finishes with verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for being such a faithful God, such a wonderful Father, Lord. One that we can depend upon, one that we can put our hopes in, one that we know will not go back on his word, one that does not lie. And Lord, when we are so unfaithful and so undependable, God, you are there. You are an anchor to our soul, God. Lord, we are, help us to be anchored deep in you, Lord, that we will not drift with every wind of doctrine, with every false movement that blows through this land, God. Let us stick to the truth, Lord. Let us be bound by it. Let us live by it, God. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've not received him. as the Father's gift of salvation. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. One song. And if God has spoken to your heart and you recognize, I need Jesus Christ. I need my sins forgiven. As one of the songs that we sang said, how He makes the sinner holy. But it's not anything of ourselves. It's no worth or merit of our own. It's Christ's holiness. When we put on his robe of righteousness, man, we are made holy before God. It's Christ's holiness in us that he gives us. So as we worship, if you want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you get up out of your seat. You make your way to the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.